You're listening to TopCast, this old pinball's online radio. For more information, visit them anytime, www.marvin3m.com slash TopCast. Today on TopCast, we're going to be talking to a pinball historian that's been involved with with pinball collecting since the early 1970s. Uh, he's also a, a big-time writer for the Game Room magazine, and he has a huge collection of wood rail pinballs from the 1940s and 1950s. So this should be a very interesting interview on his, uh, on his take of pinball and how it's evolved through the years, and he'll talk about some of the classic games from the 1950s. Special, special guests. guests. Special guests. Special guests. Special guests. I'd like to introduce Gordon Hasse. And we're going to give him a call right now and, uh, and see how he's doing. Hey, Clay. How you doing, man? Okay, good. You're kind of the pinball historian, you know, and, and I mean, you write for Game Room. and you. How long have you been writing for Game Room? A number of years, oh, right? Oh, I guess about... Probably ten years or more. Now, did you write for any magazines before that? No, but my my uh, my career uh, going back to 1969 is as uh, an advertising writer, creative director. Uh, I worked in New York City for the better part of 30 years, so I've been writing all my life. So you think that uh, th- there is a possibility that you you could finish the Dick Bouchel series? of pinball books at some point, maybe. As you may or may not know, I worked with Dick very closely uh, on the first two volumes. Uh, Steve and I were his publishers under the, the Silver Ball Amusements mark, and I did a lot of the editing and uh, some amount of rewriting. And mostly I just pointed out areas that I may have had greater familiarity with than Dick, and there was some back and forth, but... Shortly before Dick's passing, I went out to visit him, and uh, at that time, um, he kind of passed the baton to me and uh, had hoped that I would be able to finish the series. Now, that that hope is still alive, but what I discovered, and I, I shared this with Steve some time ago and, and with select folks who had inquired about it, I just found that, that the amount of material, uh, the, the large number of narratives that run throughout the thing, um, the, the complexity of the project is such that if I couldn't devote four or five hours at a stretch to what I was doing, it was almost time wasted because by the time I was able to pick it up again, uh, I had to go back through and essentially redo and rethink uh, everything that had gone previous. But I purchased Dick's archives, his pinball archives. He had, he had huge archives in other areas, but I purchased all his pinball archives and I had some significant archives of my own that I purchased over the years. And the answer, uh, the short answer is that yes, I, I do hope at some point to complete the set, but that it's it's become clear to me in the last couple of years that it's it's a retirement project. I just I just can't do it while I'm working full time. Did you write for Steve Young's magazine? Well, Steve and I started that magazine back in oh geez, 
Well, like Andy. 1984. Yeah. And uh, uh, he and I had become fast friends. We we discovered we had an interest in the old wood rails, and uh, we talked and talked and traded lies and that kind of thing for years. And then one night we sat down and said, "Geez, it'd be fun to fun to do a magazine." So uh, we did the Pinball Collectors Quarterly, which was published during eight, uh, eighty-three and eighty-four. And I think. Uh, I'd like to think it was uh, the vehicle that kind of coalesced the collecting community. I know that that our subscriber list was the mailing list for the first Pinball Expo. Uh, I know that for certainty because we, uh, you know, we supplied it to Rob Burke. But uh, a big part of the impetus for what Steve and I had done uh, was Wayne Morgan's pioneering show up in Canada uh, several years earlier. Wait, wait, what? I, I guess I've never even heard of this show. There was a pinball show in Canada? Oh, absolutely. And absolutely. What, what year was that? It started at the Dunlap Art Gallery in Regina, Saskatchewan. It was sometime in October 1974, and then it extended into 1975. It, it toured Canada. It went to about five venues. And in three of the five venues, and these were traditional art galleries, uh, it broke all previous attendance records. And that was my, my first exposure to uh, collectible pinballs and, and the appreciation of pinball as art. Now, was this, um, when you say this was traveling, so this traveled over the course of a year, from, and it stayed all within Canada, I assume. It did, but it got it got a tremendous amount of, of press internationally, and the catalog is probably the the premier collectible uh, in terms of, of pinball today. It's called Simply Tilt. It was a catalog for the exhibition. And Morgan was the first one, in my judgment, uh, to identify uh, pinball art as being worthy of appreciation, uh, and they also defined pinball machines as kinetic art, which meant that uh, it involved you in, in physical ways. You participated in the artwork. Uh, brilliant guy, and, and to this day, one of my very good friends. So he's still around? Oh, Morgan, sure. Now, yeah. how come his name seems unfamiliar to me? Uh, well, we're going back, you know, a quarter of a decade. Yeah, but did he, like, after this exhibition, did he basically kind of not do anything past that? Well, he, he published, uh, he published newsletters for about a year. I think there were four or five of them. And he has spoken at several pinball expos, but I think that was before the time that, that, uh, you had become involved in the hobby, and uh, I, he and I, uh, and Steve Young and others, spoke at numerous pinball expos early on. Uh, Morgan and I uh, uh, gave several presentations together. One of them uh, was one that took place up in Canada uh, in 1990, and we addressed the joint convention of the Popular Culture Association and the American Culture Association. 
in their annual joint meetings up in Toronto on the subject of pinball, primarily pinball as art. Hmm. Interesting. Now, his show, um, did he have, I mean, the most recent thing I can remember that did something kind of like this was the David Silverman show. Right. Here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, he had a, um, you know, pinball from, you know, the 40s to present and with a, with a strong emphasis on Roy Parker uh-huh. artwork. Uh, is it, was it kind of similar to that type of thing? Uh, I, I, I can't speak authoritatively because I'm, I'm not sure what was included in, in uh, uh, David's exhibit, although I'm quite aware of it. Um, most of what uh, was included in, in the original Tilde exhibit uh, was Gottlieb stuff uh, from the 50s, but there were some antecedents that were in there dating all the way back to the 30s. Um, I mean, it was really a seminal thing. It was it was a, a kind of a watershed uh, development, and again, in my mind, and <laughs> I, I underscore my mind because others may not agree with me, but I, I think it was the impetus for the uh, the beginning of the collecting hobby in North America. Now, how did you find out about it? Actually, uh, I was living in New York City at the time, Clay. And I happened upon well actually there were there were two people that were that were pioneers uh in the area of old pinball in the New York City area. As you know, New York City was closed to the game for several decades from, from the time of LaGuardia, uh well up into the into the seventies I believe. No, no, wait a minute. My, yeah, it was in the 70s. When, right, that's when Roger Sharp. Yeah, when Roger right. appeared before the city council and convinced them that there was skill involved. But uh, right after that, uh, there were two people up here in, in, up here, I'm down in Florida now, but I'm thinking back then. Um, there was a guy called, oh, let me see. I think they called it Pinball Patties. And to my knowledge, it was the first uh, pinball uh, restoration and sales business in Metro New York City. They were down in a village, and they had an interesting array of old pinball machines. They, they Stuff that went back to the origin days. So you mean a place that specialized just in kind of like unlike uh, a Mike Munvey's type thing because wasn't Munvey's still around in the 70s? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Mike Munvey's was still there. As a matter of fact, when they closed out, Steve and I were in there and and digging stuff out of the out of the boxes and archives and shelves. But yeah, Munvey's was still there. And Munvey's, I think, at least when I left New York about eight years ago, still existed, but they were out in New Rochelle. Uh, but uh, Pinball Patty and her partner, I think his name was, I think it was Joe Masidi, but I can't be sure of that. It's been so long. But uh, I went in there and I was I was struck by the fact that somebody was doing this with old pinball machines at about the time that I became interested in it. And one of the things they shared with me at that time, and this would have been, oh, geez, uh 70, early 70s, uh, was a Xerox copy of the Tilt Catalog. 
And when I saw that, my head exploded because one of the things that Morgan did extraordinarily well was he described the headset of the 50s player at the time, which was without question male, working class, and he talked about the dream wish fulfillments that these games represented for for these young men. And it resonated so strongly with me, I just thought, geez, this this guy has really doped this thing out. I mean that's I mean I wasn't I wasn't working class, but I certainly appreciated these dream wish fulfillments that that were offered up in nineteen fifties pinball. So I quickly got in touch with Morgan and we became fast friends and out of that evolved the pinball collectors quarterly and uh what really happened there was, I think we were too much too soon. Uh, it was a very ambitious publication, even though it was only 16 pages. And we, we kept getting done by people who said, well, you know, geez, you know, I buy, uh, I buy Reader's Digest and I get 286 pages every month and, uh, I pay more to you and I only get 16 pages once a quarter and there's no color. So, you know, these were clearly people that were ignorant of, of the process of publishing and the economics of publishing. And Anyway, we lasted four issues, and uh, we put, put out an appeal for folks to renew, and uh, it wasn't enough to support it, so we folded it. And I think for the first time ever, before or since, uh, we refunded the unfulfilled subscriptions of every damn subscriber. I don't think that was ever done again. <laughs> so was this the? Uh, you feel that this was the the really the first subscription based pinball magazine then, right? Well, uh, I, I I wouldn't go that far. Um, I I don't want to take credit from those who preceded us, and it was a guy named Pete Belarsic, who owned Novel Amusements out of Linden, New Jersey, and Pete published a publication called uh, the Pinball Wizard News. And it was, a, it was, for the most part, a dedicated pinball publication that was originally done as uh, a tabloid-sized newspaper and then ultimately shrunk to uh, an 8.5 by 11. Uh, Pete was kind of first out there, but, but his focus was very diffuse. He was kind of looking for a market. Uh, he was trying to attract advertising from the trade. He was trying to... Uh, developed pinball contests across New Jersey and then ultimately across the country. Um, so I, I, I would be loath to say that we were the first ever pinball publication, but I, I, I would say uh, with some degree of certainty that we were the first uh, uh, pinball publication dedicated to the collector and the, the pinball historian. Now, what are, what are your roots in pinball? How far how far back does this go for you? Well, it goes back probably to 1953, Clay. That's my first memory of having played pinball. And this occurred in the neighborhood that I grew up in, which was a place called Fox Chase, which was up in the northeast part of Philadelphia. It was within the city limits, but just barely. 
And I used to I used to play. I used to wander in with my nickel in hand and trepidatiously walk up to these machines because the place where I played was a place called Spurls, and it was kind of a greasy spoon, and it was also at the end of the then trolley stop. I mean, you're <laughs> you're talking 1953, my friend. So there were there were still trolleys in abundance running in Philadelphia, and this was at the end of a trolley stop, and it was patronized primarily by the trolley drivers and conduct and conductors. So you know to wander in there as an eight-year-old kid to play these games was a bit intimidating, but the first games I remember playing were a Williams Deluxe Baseball, which is a 453 game, as you well know. And uh, a Williams twenty grand from twelve of fifty two. So that was my first brush with pinball, and I, I, I would have to say that from the moment I came in contact with a game, I was I was struck and mesmerized. Were you a good player back then? Oh, I was, I was just a kid. I mean, to me, it was just it was excitement, pure and simple. It was it was it was indulging in in what I perceived then to be uh, a very adult and for the most part a a very uh, you know marginal kind of experience because it's it's hard it's hard for somebody born after say 1950 to appreciate the fact that in those days even though pinball was legal in a lot of municipalities and of course illegal in many. It still had the stigma of being decidedly kind of lowbrow, low class. So most most middle class families discouraged their sons, and of course no no daughters played pinball in those days. That was that was totally forbidden. But uh, it was it was kind of a uh, a low class diversion in the fifties. Now, so. when you uh, was this the only place that you played at? Well, that, that that was my that was my first uh, that was my first exposure to the game. Um, later, uh, I played in many venues uh, about a mile from my home, and this is quite a bit later. But in the sixties, um, Del Ennis, who had been uh, a pro baseball player with the Phillies, uh, had a bowling alley in Huntington Valley, which was eh, about a mile from my home. And they had a pit, if you will, where there were always five or six new games on display. And we used to play there when I was in junior high school at Woodrow Wilson Junior High, up again in the northeast of, of Philadelphia. There were a couple of venues where I used to play. One was called Buchner's, which I wrote about extensively in Game Room. And another was called Danny's Den. And the difference between the two venues was that Buchner's got games that had been in, in other locations and, you know, had, had quite a bit of wear on them, but they were always nickel, nickel of play. Uh, Danny's Den, on the other hand, always got brand new games, but they had the new 10 cent coin shoots on, which was, you know, a, a big change because uh, for years, from 1933 until, 
you know, late in the 50s, uh, a five-ball game was five cents. And in fact, the impetus for changing from five to ten cents had nothing to do with the economics of the game, and I can talk about that a little if you're interested. Yeah, yeah. It had mostly to do with the fact that, that the, the pinball manufacturers decided that, okay, the phone companies decided to change a phone call from five to ten cents. This is the opportune time to move. And that's when they changed it. Huh. And now, how much did this have a social, uh, oh, I don't want to say impact, but a social revolt within pinball players? Well, I'll tell you, it's interesting because um, uh, Gary Stern's dad, um Sam Stern, in in the 50s, in the early 50s, I'm not sure whether he was just an operator or whether he was a distributor, but he was in Philly. And he was one of the early proponents of the dime-per-game play. And I guess in... Oh, geez, it must have been must have been 53, because I think that's when the game came out, but... Uh, he wanted to test his hypothesis that the dime was the right the right number, and what he did he took what to my to my thinking is is one of the great Williams games, and it was the first game I ever personally owned williams army navy and of course he was in Philadelphia where the army Navy game had taken place for decades, so he had a he had a highly attuned and responsive audience. But he did a test on Army-Navy, and he put a dime shoot on it. And what he found was that play initially fell off. But if you left the game on location for a reasonable amount of time, which was probably, you know, three weeks or more, the play returned to its, you know, to its original level, and you were getting twice the return. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. But he, but he didn't. That was the only game he tried it on. He didn't. He didn't uh, go into full force with that. Apparently not. I don't, I don't know enough about it to speak uh, to speak with with authority. To be honest with you, Clay. But I, I know that that uh, uh, he was one of the first to attempt that. And then, and I can't. Again, I can't give you uh, an absolute cutoff date. But uh, the dime play really. Um, uh, came into popularity when when Gottlieb introduced their multiplayers, beginning with Super Jumbo back in '54. Now, how popular uh, really were multiplayers back then? Pardon? How popular were multiplayers really back then? You know, I can't tell you because I, I, I was not a fan, and and I've had several conversations with with Wayne Nyans about them, and uh, I, I can't gainsay. Uh, what Wayne says about them, in, in, in Wayne's estimation, uh, they saved the business, they kept the factories uh, running, they kept people employed, but in, in my personal judgment, I've told Wayne this, I'm not, I'm not speaking out of turn or out of school, uh, I felt that the difference between the, the multiplayer games where uh, achievement was denominated totally in scores uh, were far inferior to uh, 
the single-player games that he made for the duration of the decade of the 50s. You mean because the rule set was so thin, the only way to win replays was really based on score. Precisely. It wasn't on achieving Precisely. You know, X number of targets in certain order or certain rollovers or anything like that. Precisely, Clay. And, I mean, you take a, you take a game like, uh, for example, uh, a 12.52 Queen of Hearts or a 6.52 Dragonette or, excuse me, 6.54 Dragonette or a 10.54 Four Bells. And, you know, you're looking at games with, with five roots to specials. And that to me, and it enduringly is the reason that, uh, I'm so hyped about 50 single-player Gottlieb games because you know you look you look at today's games and I have I have great and I say this with with absolute sincerity I have I have great admiration and appreciation for the talents of the designers of today's games but I do not believe that they speak adequately to. Uh, the market. I don't. I don't think they're. I, I'm a marketing guy. That's what I do. That's what I do for my business. Uh, I've been in the advertising marketing business for more than 30 years, and the the, the key to success is to divine not what you want to manufacture, but what the buyer wants to buy. And I'd be the first to admit that. Uh, you know the 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 old uh, the old standards, the old situation no longer exists. The the venues where these games were played have disappeared in alarming numbers. When I was a child in Philadelphia, every candy store, every corner bar, every every uh, soda shop. Uh, Almost any kind of a, a retail venue that you walked in uh, had one of these things sitting. Some of them had two, three, four. Buchner's where I, that I referenced earlier, uh, Caddy Corner from the junior high that I went to, uh, had four games all the time on the floor. Uh, bus stations had them in quantity. Uh, and And the appeal there in my judgment, and everything I'm saying is my perspective. I don't, I don't, I don't propose or suggest that this should be accepted as gospel. People are going to disagree with what I have to say, and they should. But the the appeal of these games was that they were available, they were intuitive, they were inexpensive, they were little moments of fun, and and today. Uh, the game designers, in my judgment, uh, design for themselves, and they design for the very, very, very most engaged players. And there are probably no more than a hundred of them around the world. And people are loath to, you know, the casual player is gone. The casual player doesn't have fifty bucks to pump into one of these things to even understand the game rules. The casual player is off-put 
play a game that they have no way of understanding intuitively. The best they can hope for is to keep the ball moving. And I, I, I think, although there's no question that, 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 that the change in venues and the lack of the number of venues that existed when I was a kid is critical and important in the decline of pinball, as are the, you know, the, the introduction of, of video games without question. But I think that, you know, it was a casual diversion and somebody had dropped a nickel in and they'd be able to play and intuitively understand what the game rules were. And, and the other thing that happened was that, you know, in, in the days of the wood rails, if you got a little bit sophisticated about the game you were playing, many Gottlieb games would reward up to 10, 12, in some cases 26 games at a crack. Right, you know, right, like uh, like Sweet Adeline. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And today, you know, you, you got to squat and strain to maybe win one or two games, and uh, it's 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 just a different experience. The 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 analogy that I draw, whether it's apt or not, you know, when I was a kid, there was a guy named Dan Bragg, excuse me, Don Bragg, and he was the greatest pole vaulter in the whole world. He was an Olympic champion. He was a Quantico Marine, and he used to vault with a with a with a steel pole, and that was one event. That was pole vault. And then the 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 uh, uh, the fiberglass pole came in, and the event changed entirely. You had guys that that were able to run so fast that they could bend that fiberglass pole almost in half, and be sprung over the bar. It had nothing to do with upper body strength. It had nothing to do with the kind of coordination that, that somebody like Don Bragg had. It had to do entirely with the dynamics of the pole. And that's the analogy that I make between 50s pinball and the pinball of today. It's an entirely different sport. You know, if you buy into it, if you like it, God bless. But it's a totally different experience. I don't relate to it. When I play the game, you know, when I play current games, uh, you know, I'll invest in one or two games just to see what's going on. But I get none of the satisfactions I got from the old games. And now, you you obviously have a collection of, of the wood rails too, right? Mm-hmm. How many machines do you have? I've got on the order of 200. What are they mostly? I mean, are they all from the fifties? Mostly Gottlieb. Well, I have I have a complete run of the Gottlieb stuff from from right before the war through the end of the uh, uh, the end of the Woodrill era. Uh, you know that thing. Jeez. Uh, uh, so when the metal rails came, yeah, you know, I, I, interested I, in those. I, I, I kind of lost interest after. Photo finish and flipper. Although I had both of those games because they were they were made both ways, but uh, I have I have, with the exception of, of Super Jumbo and uh, Duet, uh, I have none of the multiplayers. I have those only from a completist standpoint because I want to be able to show the the point in time where the game changed dramatically. Now, why um, why no wedge heads? I mean, was the wedge heads just you know? 
I mean, why, you know, there's still single, a lot of good single player wedge heads. Why kind of avoid them? No, I absolutely agree with you. Uh, it's, it's been quite honestly, Clay, it's been, it's been more, uh, a need to, to focus on what I like, what I like best. Uh, as you can imagine, I've got a significant, uh, investment in what I have. Uh, there are some wedge heads that I think are, are quite admirable games. Uh, I just, I just have not been able to acquire them. My, my, uh, my personal, uh, criteria, uh, led me to, uh, to acquire wood rails from, from other manufacturers before I went after wedge heads. Uh, you know, it's, it's not right or wrong, it's just where I went. I've got, uh, I don't know, probably 25 Williams wood rails and, Got some Genco's. I've got some Marvels. I've got some a uh, uh, little bit of everything, to be honest with you. So, where do you put 200 games? Well, most of my stuff is in storage uh, up in upstate New York. I've got I've got about uh, you asked the question in, in the uh, uh, the pre-interview thing that you sent me. I've, I've got about a dozen games set up down here. Um, like totally your, restored. Your favorites? Uh, well, no, not necessarily. In, in many cases, what I did was I pulled stuff out that uh, I had some fond memories about and and wanted to... I, I have to be honest with you. Uh, with very few exceptions, uh, I played virtually all of the Gottlieb wood rails as, as a young guy uh, from... Probably 1950 till the end of the wood rail era, uh, either new or old and abused. And uh, a lot of what I have, a lot of what I have set up, is stuff that I didn't have a chance to really enjoy and appreciate. For instance, Queen of Hearts is probably my my, my favorite Gottlieb wood rail from 12 to 52, but I don't have one set up down here because I, I, I played the damn thing to death as a kid. And uh, same thing with Dragonette, very high on my list. Dragonette or Four Bells, depending upon you know which iteration. Twin Bell, I love. I think it's probably one of the finest games ever made. Uh, I don't have that set up down here. Diamond Lil is another great favorite. Don't have that set up down here. Lightning Ball, love the play. Hate the graphics. Yeah, me too. Uh, it was one of Wayne's favorites, and we agree that uh, it suffered from. Graphics that were nowhere near the, the the peer of the design. Hawaiian Beauty, I love, but I don't have it set up. Uh, I had a I had an opportunity years ago uh, to play a Joker uh, in the Young Fetterman collection. Uh, it just set me off like I couldn't believe. So I restored that, set that up here. Love to play it. Fabulous, hard, hard fabulous game. early game. Eleven of fifty. Hard hard game to find, Joker. Oh, tough to find. Tough to find, and when you find it, it's beat beat to death. Yeah. Niagara, another another big favorite. I do have that set up here. I'm not completely restored, but um, you know, one of the things that, uh, apropos of the points you raised um, about, or I shouldn't say you raised the, the point we discussed about the modern games versus uh, the older games. One of the things that, that Gottlieb felt very strongly about and incorporated in, into a lot of their 
uh, repair manuals and literature, uh, they used to say it's important for the player to receive the proper amount of amusement and for the operator to receive a fair return on his investment. Right, it's like in every one of their parts catalogs it says Absolutely. And I think that's where the modern games fail. I don't think they do either. Hmm, interesting. Now, how did you feel about Williams wood rails in the 50s compared to the Gottlieb stuff? You know, they took a slightly different approach to the whole pinball thing. No question. Well, I, quite honestly, Clay, and I wrote, I wrote uh, a fairly extensive article about this in Game Room where uh, I made a clean breast of it and I said that, you know, the innovators in the 50s were not Gottlieb, it was Williams. Uh, I think one of the reasons that Gottlieb succeeded so admirably was they were, they were able to, uh, uh, Well, they were much more conservative. Yeah, they were able to evolve, uh, rather than, than, than have each game be a revolution. And I think there was, I think it was a high level of comfort uh, for the Gottlieb player, I think there was, I think it was a much greater sense of identification with Gottlieb games than it was with Williams. I mean, Williams did wonderful creative things, and as, as I think you've stated in some of the things you've written and some of the stuff that I've written, you know, I mean, look, look at Nine Sisters with that early Whirly Gig and, and the One Flipper games and the, the miniature play fields and, 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 uh, well, and, and like Sky, uh, you know, uh, Sky, um, Skyway, yeah, yeah Skyway, yeah, incredible, that yeah, that totally, totally out of the box, right? Uh, I mean, it looked like uh, nothing you'd ever seen before. But yeah. I think at once that was its its saving grace and its downfall because uh, I, I think most players, especially those that became importantly engaged in pinball, were looking for things that felt comfortable to them. And, and Gottlieb was a master at evolving in, in very slow and, and uh, kind of uh, organic ways uh, their playfield designs. And, and, you know, a guy could walk... Well, I mean, as I pointed out in that article some time ago, you know, the, the one extreme was the United Games. And, and they were almost mirror images of one another. And I got a lot of feedback from old operators, particularly in the South, that uh, the United Wood Rails, the United Flipper Games, uh, fared very well down there because they were totally predictable. They were all spell-named games. Uh, the playfield designs were, were incredibly similar. So it didn't matter whether you were playing a Havana or a Tropicana or whatever the hell it was. Uh, you know, you walked up to the game and the graphics were different, but the award system was the same and, uh, they felt real comfortable. And of course they had that machine gun repeating, uh, 10,000 unit that, that, and, and the motor that cycled a whole lot faster than Gottlieb. So for people that were into it, an adrenaline rush in that time, I guess it was a great thing. On the other end, uh, you had Williams, uh, and, Almost everything they did from game to game was 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 so different and so revolutionary that that you know you never got your sea legs with Williams back in the fifties. 
until late in the 50s. Uh, yeah, they really calmed down after 56 or so. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, fact, but I, I love Williams stuff. Uh, the only reason I don't own more of it is is I just didn't have the funds. I've probably got, I don't know, 20, 25 Williams wood rails, but... Well, they're a lot harder to find, actually. Oh, they're tough to find. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, like the Nine Sisters, that um, that spiral ramp, I mean, you know, you don't see that again in the pinball machine till you know, 1986 Pinbot, you know Absolutely what I mean? Absolutely right. And um, that, in the, in the sky, um, the Skyway, that, that whole thing, that's the freakiest pinball uh, play field I, I, I've ever seen of anything in the no, it's extraordinary. I agree with you. Believe me, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a great fan of the Williams Fifty stuff. I just, I just wish that. Uh, I mean, my objective had been going in to get a, a complete run of the the Gottlieb Wood Rails, the single players, and and I was able to do that. And uh, uh, you know, in in retrospect, I, I wish I had had the. Uh, the funds to enable me to to get more of the the Williams stuff because I think it's classic. Plus, I I, I was I was a I was a personal friend of George Melenton's. I happen to love uh, his approach. I think it was very different than Roy Parker's, but uh, I think I think it had uh, an impact and a validity uh, all its own. I, 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 You're talking I about the artwork, you mean? That, in the... my judgment. The artwork was a lot less defined on Williams games than, you know, Parker was much more detail-oriented, where uh, Williams' artwork seemed uh, cruder to me. Well, you know, I, I guess I would differ with you on that point, because in my judgment, uh, I think I think Parker, uh, and I love his stuff, I absolutely love it, I think Parker was in the vein of of the the panel or the the Sunday comic artists of that day. I think his his Amazon women uh, were of the nature of say Alex Raymond for Flash Gordon or uh, uh, Wally Wood for Mad Magazine. Uh, whereas whereas uh, Melanton. Was very much in the vein of of the fashion artists who were still working at mid-century that were illustrating for you know the the, the fashion magazines. I mean, his his women uh, are much softer; uh, they're more vulnerable. Um, uh, I think in in that sense, they're 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 uh, 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 more approachable. So you know, I, I I don't make any distinction in terms of of saying you know I think I think I think Parker was more renowned, no question about it, well, the, because the thing he was I, more in your face. But I, I think I think George Melenton, uh was more a reflection of of of, of the classic uh, um, illustrators of of the mid fifties. The thing the is, I look at the Parker history. artwork. I beg your pardon. I look at the Parker artwork, and for example. You look at a woman's hair, and uh-huh. he has the detail drawn into the hair. You know the the waves and the different the different colors, like you know, like there was sunlight shining on it. And uh-huh. you look at you know the Williams artwork, you know Melanum's art artwork, and you know he just draws the hair one color. Uh-huh. You know the the detail is just not there. 
You know, it's different it's, style, no question about yeah, it. To me, it's just not anywhere near the detail. It's I don't find it as as appealing as sexy. To me, it seems like it was done much quicker. It was done with less screens, less colors. It it just seems cheaper to me. I guess that's yeah. It seems cheaper. You know, just like they didn't want to spend as much time doing it as as Parker put into it. You see that, and I kind of like the the evolution of that. Like the next you know layer up is like Christensen during the seventies, where he even took it a step even further and puts even more detail into it. Mm-hmm. And those guys, you know, people don't understand. You know, this was all pre computers, so yep. you know they have to. Not only do they have to draw each color, and and figure out how it layers and go together. But a lot of these guys cut their own screens. Oh, no too. question about it. Yeah, I mean, they're there with a razor blade. In the old days, they did, yeah. Yeah, and, and the amount of work that that must have taken these guys, I, I just, you know, totally just, I, I think it's unbelievable. Well, I think, I think one of the things, and, and I, don't, I don't disagree with what you're saying about, about the, the contrast between the two. Uh, you know, I, I happen to be, uh, equivocal. I, I, I appreciate both of them for what they were. Uh, I think the one thing that you do have to acknowledge is the fact that uh, Parker uh, worked almost exclusively for Gottlieb. He did a lot of stuff earlier for everybody, and and people don't acknowledge that generally. But he he worked for Chicago Coin. He worked for Genco. Uh, but for the most part, certainly in the decade of the 50s. Melenton was doing the lion's share of the work. He worked for everybody. He did every one of the Bally Bingo games. Every one of them. Right. Every goddamn one of them. Yeah. Well, you know, these guys, both these guys worked, of course, for what, ad posters, I believe? Well, or, or George, the George was uh, um, was the, the art one. director at, I don't know whether it was ad posters or reproduction. Yeah, the one of them, the reproduction burned down yeah. twice. But, yeah. Yeah, but they, they worked for... You know, basically art houses, and and um, yeah, you're right. Uh, Roy Parker had a lock with Gottlieb because that's what I guess that's what David Gottlieb wanted. Yeah, he he did. He absolutely did. He 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 wanted Parker to do his work. Um, as a matter of fact, I think, I, to my knowledge, the only the only Williams games that uh, Parker did during that area were Olympics and Top Hat, I believe. He did. He did a couple of Williams games. It must have been when when George was not feeling well or on vacation. But uh, you know, I think in my judgment, they're 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 both admirable, and and the work that that was done by them. You know, you can prefer one or the other, and that's that's fine. Most people right, do. But right. I think that collectively, the two of them defined the genre without question. Without question. Now, have you ever operated games? Uh, never operated pinball. The only <laughs> the only operating I ever did I had a couple of Jennings slot machines. And years ago, when when I used to be involved in in group houses out in the Hamptons on Long Island, uh, I used to used to sit them in the uh, in the kitchen, and and the other house members would would play them. But no, I've never never operated any pinball. Now, um, when did you actually start? Buying machines for your collection, or when did you start collecting? I guess would be a better question. Well, the first two games I owned were, believe it or not, a Williams Army Navy and uh, a Gottlieb 
Happy Days. And that was about, oh, geez. I want to say Army-Navy was like 57. I got it as a Christmas uh, Christmas gift because I kept bugging my, my parents and said, you know, I really want a pinball machine. <laughs> and then I think the next Christmas uh, I got the... Uh, um, the Happy Days? Uh, I got the Happy Days. Great, great uh, artwork on that game. Yeah, it's Among the best. And actually, the, the Army-Navy is... Talk about Williams games, you know, with those... Uh, the goalposts, the lighted goalposts. Oh yeah, and and you know the 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 the, uh, the action components powered by fifty rather than twenty four. It's it's a big difference. I mean, well, yeah, all the Williams games during the fifties were at fifty volts to about sixty three. Oh, uh, they're great. Yeah, and yeah, they they definitely. Well, it, it's more versatile. I mean, if you want to make something more powerful, it's certainly pretty easy. <laughs> you know, it doesn't take much. Put a set of Gottlieb flipper coils in one of those games, and then you'll understand what I mean. You're absolutely <laughs> you'll, right. You're, you're sending the, the right ball right. through, you know, the side rails. Yep. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, the the Williams games definitely, that 50 volts had... Uh, but had, but my I, w- I would give for... Whoever might be interested in it, I would give my personal endorsement. The Army Navy is, is is a terrific, terrific playing game. We'll be right back with our interview with Gordon Hassey after these messages. The Pin Game Journal is a proud sponsor of Topcast. It covers pinball like no other publication can. The Pin Game Journal is America's only pinball publication. Whether you're looking for new games or the classics, reports on industry shows or collector expos, Insights on a game you want or features to help you fix the game you've got, Pin Game Journal's for you. Their website is at pingamejournal.com. Okay, we're back with Gordon Hassey right now. How did you feel about the impulse flippers? You know, just to explain, a lot of people don't know what I mean. Yeah. Um, you know, Gottlieb are traditional style flippers, just not much different than flippers on today's games. Yep. Um, where impulse flippers is you could press either the right or left button. If the game had two flippers, they both flipped yep. either button and they only went up and then they came back down yep there was no way to hold the, the yep. ball in the v yep um you know they're a, a much different feel what you know i personally don't like them so much no i th- I, I i think uh, i think that williams uh suffered share of market tremendously based on that what why did they do that it was, a, it was a key differentiating factor and i think that's one of the reasons that that Gottlieb, after the war, after after you know, Exhibit and Genco and 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 some of the uh, uh, manufacturers that uh, had huge presences prior to the war, dropped out, and it became pretty much a you know a, a two manufacturer race. I think that's that's a large reason why uh, Gottlieb got the upper hand. Well, did, were they doing it just to be different? Uh, I think I think there were patent issues at the outset. To be honest with you, no. Well, I, I I did some research on that, and actually, there appears that there were none. Really? Yeah. That um, Gottlieb never did patent the flipper, and I asked uh, Wayne about it, and he said, you know, at the time we just didn't think it was that big a deal, and also we had this. He kept on saying this over and over. He said, uh, uh, "Quite, well, you're right about that. You're good for right the industry it. is I, I, good I for can, us." I can only assume that, that it may have been uh, concerns or paranoia that to go in that direction may have uh, precipitated some kind of illegal action. 
because there's no question about it. I mean, anybody that played those games uh, had to instantly be aware of the difference. And, I mean, uh, one of the things I loved about the Williams games of that era uh, were the auto flippers, and I think that was in part uh, an attempt to gainsay the difference. Now, what but, are the auto flippers? What do you mean? Uh, the flippers where uh, you, you went into... Kick-out hole? Yeah, it looked like a kick-out hole, and it was adjacent to a flipper, but it didn't kick out. What it did was it activated the flipper adjacent to it. What game used that? Oh, geez, there were a number of Williams games that used it. Uh, 20 Grand used it. Uh, I think Silver Skates used it. I think Times Square used it. Hmm. I, I guess I've not played those. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a fun thing. And, of course, you have no control over the trajectory, but, but it was a neat, it had a fiddle factor that was neat. And uh, I think that may have been one of the things that Williams tried to do in that period uh, to divert attention from, uh, you know, the power of the Gottlieb flipper and the fact that you could hold it. Yeah, the um, Tim Arnold has a hay burners, 1951 Williams hay burners. Yep. And he converted it from impulse-style flippers to Gottlieb-style flippers. Yep. And I I played it, and I was like, in, you know, I never liked that game. Hey, no, I never did either. Well, I played Tim's, and it was like, oh, my, an entirely different game. I mean, it took on a whole other personality. Even though the flippers are, are reverse, you know, they For swing sure. outward instead of inward. Um, you know, they, they seemed so much more controllable. The game was a lot more fun. Um, I was really shocked on what the difference it made. Well, I, I, I think to be, to be honest, and I, you know, I can't, um, I can't presume to know, but my, my guess would be that, uh, those games, uh, that carried those flippers were, were designed for that uh, situation, and I would I would guess that when you played that retrofit hay burners, that not only did it play in a more interesting way, it probably yielded uh, much greater opportunities for replays. Yes. Um. It's been a couple years since I played it. I can't remember if I won any games. I just I don't remember. Yeah. I don't. I, I was just such in awe that I could actually. You know, aim and hit things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because with the impulse flippers, it, it always seemed like such a. Maybe I just wasn't that used to them, but it seemed like such a crapshoot as to exactly where your shot was going to oh, go. No question about it, man. It, I, I think I think it hobbled some of the great, truly great Williams games early on. It's, it's to the point where on some of my, you know, I've got a couple uh, games, Williams games with impulse flippers. I was actually thinking of converting them, like Tim did. I wasn't sure if that was um, the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do, but it it sure is tempting. Well, you know, we didn't get into that, but my my personal feeling is, uh, you know, those games are yours. You own them. Do what you, do what's going to make you enjoy them uh, to the greatest extent. I mean, I've I've retrofit a number of my Gottlieb games uh, with with Don Murphy's Hot Flippers. And and in some cases it's been a mistake. Uh, I've gone back and I've taken them out and, and put the uh, the original strength coils in them. But in many cases, even though I do, I, I mean I do, I do ground up 
restorations. I take the damn things apart entirely, and uh, I essentially rebuild anything that's screwed up. Uh, I replace coils that, that are questionable or certainly burned out. But uh, and I also put everything on high tap with no apology. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm kind of the same philosophy too. I, I like the high tap. I tend to use. Uh, Donald Murphy's um, more high-powered flippers, not in all my games, but in a lot of them, they're in there. Um, it, it, to me, it's just it's like it, it just gives a little bit more control. I can line up shots better. Um, but on the other hand, it probably, as a friend of mine puts it, eclipses eclipses any score that you would ever have gotten, you know, back in the day, as he puts it. Well, you know, I, I, I'll tell you this, Clay. Having played about, oh, maybe, maybe a third, probably not that much, but maybe a third of Gottlieb's 50 games, uh, 50s games, uh, when they were new, uh, believe me, you can't discount, uh, what happened when you played a new Gottlieb game because that surface was like glass. The ball didn't roll, it slid. And you can't replicate that on a 50-year-old game. And the only way you can come close to it is is to increase the power of, 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 of the power components. So to me, what you're doing is equalizing uh, a play situation that existed 50 years ago. Hmm, I mean, it was unbelievable. It, you know, you've played brand-new games out of the box, right? Sure. Imagine a 50s game in the same kind of condition. Right. I mean, it really, it was almost it was almost off-putting because, as I said, the ball didn't roll; it 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 slid. That 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 play field, that diamond-coated play field, even the earlier ones were so slick that I mean, it was just unbelievable. Yeah, my a couple of my uh, wedge heads, I've actually um, you know clear-coated the play fields to to get a more smooth, uniform surface. And it's the same guy still makes fun of me on those too, you know. Where you know because it's like you said, the ball, you know, there's nothing to impede it. Exactly. You know, it it, it does it, it 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 they play differently. And I of course I never played a new wood rail or a new wedge head or even a new '70s game for sure. that matter. So sure. I have no recollection of how that stuff ever played. Um, and you're the only guy. <laughs> I know. Yeah, that I know, has that memory. Book. I'm telling you, man, it was it was it was a it was a trip. Uh, I mean, I can quote chapter and verse. I had that experience with Classic Bowler. I had it with Ace High. I had it with Auto Race. I had it with Lightning Ball. I mean, it was it was extraordinary. It was just it, it's you, you can't replicate it uh, unless you know you get a guy who who. Uh, you know, totally laminates that play field, which I, I'm not into. I'm, I'm into graphics. You know, you asked the question about, um, would, you know, do you prefer a, uh, an original or a retouched or an original glass or uh, a repro? And my answer is always, I'm for the graphics. I, I'd like to see it as close to the original graphics as possible. And, um, uh, but the, but the play, Clay, I mean, it was unreal. It was unreal. It was yeah, I've kind of, on my 60s games, I've touched up and clear-coated 
a lot of the play fields. Uh-huh. But on my 50s wood rails, I, I haven't done any of that. Um, I, I don't know why, but it just seems like, you know, I, I, I just, like, there are bigger... For some reason, I get this feeling with wood rails that they're a bigger part of history than wedge heads are. Now, I don't know why that is, but they just they just feel it. They They have a certain awe to them. And maybe that's because the production numbers were smaller. They're not yep. as easy yep. to find. Yep. Let's face it, if you wanted a buckaroo, um, a, you know, a 65 Gottlieb wedge head. Yeah, get it tomorrow. Yeah, you could probably make, a, a, you know, 10 phone calls yep. in an afternoon and find one. Yep. You know, but if you wanted, you know, uh, you know, a sweet Adeline or a Dragonette or, or heck, even a knockout, yep. which, was a very high production. Yeah, made in huge numbers, 3,500. Yeah. yeah, huge numbers. That was like the highest production Gottlieb wood rail, you know, there was during the, certainly prior to 57. Yep. Um, you know, you would probably be hard-pressed to find one. Yep, no and, question about it. Yeah, so, you know, if you wanted something even more rare, like a, you know, like a four bells, you know, that might take you, you know, years and years to locate. Yeah, took, took me ten. Yeah, really? Yeah. <laughs> I I'll tell you, you know, the, the, the controversy in, in my mind is, is very analogous to the difference between uh, antique auto collectors and collectors of antique furniture. You know, your antique furniture collectors will say, I want the original patina. If you fuck with it, if you strip it, if you do anything to that patina, the price of that thing is just drops precipitously. Right. Whereas the antique car collector will say, I want to bring this back to better than pristine mint condition. I want every damn screw, every damn bolt, everything to be pristine. Now, who's to say who's right? I don't know. You know, especially the collectors today, you know, there's a lot of guys that want you know, the guys that are collecting the 90s games, they want all that stuff, you know, they want, you know, uh, you know, another eighth inch of clear coat lathered on top of the, yeah. you know, the current, you know, to make the thing, you know, three sheets of glass, yeah. you know, which to me is a bit extreme, but, you know, you know, some of these people I think are buying new Stern games and sending them out to have them, you know, detailed as it may be, <laughs> you know, which... Well, you know, you know what, Clay, I, I, I've been in it so damn long. I've been in it since, I don't know, shit, 73, 74. You know, whatever rings your bell, honestly. I, 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 don't, I, I don't have any axe to grind. If, if, that's what, if that's what these guys like, God Yeah, more them. power to them. <laughs> really? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I have, I have my games. I, I do with them what I want, and they make me happy. They make me smile. I love to see them. I love to open up the front door and put my nose in there and smell old grease and and uh, you know old paper and <laughs> you know that's just the way it is. I, I don't know. Now, how how do you I, feel I, about cabinet repaints? You know? Well, I, you know, I, I've I've repainted a few, but only when it was so so sad. For instance, I'm sitting here in my office. I've got a Gottlieb Chinatown sitting right next to me, and when I got it, uh, the whole cabinet was was repainted matte black. And well, it's I, better I, one step up from poop brown. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> 
actually one step down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I spent probably the better part of three days with four-aught steel wool and compound uh, pulling that shit off. And, you know, it ain't great, but it's the original cabinet. Right. And I see that, you know, the beautiful uh, pinks and greens and, 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 and yellows and blacks and that makes me a lot happier than than sitting here looking at a, a pristine repainted cabinet. Although I've done that, I you know I got a uh, the four bells that I finally got. The cabinet was was so shabby that uh, it just didn't make any sense. And I got a good a good solid repaint on it, and uh, it looks great. So you know I don't have any I don't have any hard and fast rules. I I, I try and I try and keep what's original where possible, um, but you know I think you have to do what makes you happy. Now, when did you start researching the game histories and really getting into the collecting? Uh, I would guess about I don't know seventy three, maybe seventy four, and at that time the the only guys that I knew that were heavily into it uh, were Rush Jensen and. Uh, uh, out on the West Coast, um, uh, Pinball Ranch. Uh, now, how did you find Russ? Pardon? How did you find Russ? Actually, when when uh, when Morgan uh, did his show and and his um, his catalog, uh, following that, he did three or four newsletters. And I can't remember whether I discovered Russ uh, as a correspondent, a write-in to one of those newsletters, or whether it was in the old coin slot. And coin slot started out on uh, on Long Island, and I'm trying to remember the name of the, the two people that started. It was a man and a wife. And at the time it began, which was, I think, early 70s, uh, it was a dedicated... Um, slot machine uh, publication. It was digest sized and about a year or a year and a half into its history, uh, Steve Young and and uh, John Fetterman who were roommates at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania started submitting articles about pinball. And I can't remember whether uh, I first came across Russ uh, in those columns or in letters in response to those columns uh, or in letters in response to the newsletters, the four newsletters that Wayne Morgan issued uh, after his Tilt exhibit, but it was fairly early on. Yeah, yeah, I'm amazed. He's been around a long time. He's kind of, uh, unfortunately, he's kind of out of it now. Russ was very definitely in the vanguard, as, as a matter of fact, uh, as a pinball historian, I think he and probably the, the two guys that published the original pinball reference guide, Don Muting and, and Rob Hawkins, uh, were probably the very first guys who who were into that. And and the uh, the original pinball reference guide which caused a huge, huge stir in the, the original collecting community, uh, was 
was published in, in 1979, June of 79. How many, how many pinball collectors do you think there are in the world? I've really been thinking about this lately, and i got to figure that I think the numbers are really pretty low compared to what I thought a couple years ago. Well, uh, you know, I, I, I try, to, try to make a guesstimate at that myself, and I think maybe a pretty good indicator is to look at Dana Pettit's listing and and take those numbers and extrapolate by a factor of maybe three. And that's probably not too far off. That's probably not. I think he might send out maybe 3,000 emails a day, maybe. Maybe. Well, look look at his his, 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 uh, collector's list. Right. I'm not sure... I'm not sure how many how many people are listed there, but uh, I think if you took that and multiplied that by a, a factor of three or perhaps four, you'd probably come pretty close. Because I think, like every other activity, there's there's the iceberg, the tip of the iceberg, and and then the uh, the rest of the people who are involved but but not actively involved. So you know, I if I had to guess. I'd say ten thousand. What about wood rail collectors? How many do you think were into that? Uh, Three hundred, maybe. What do you see for the market? For because in the you know wood rails really were hot a couple of years ago, but things have really kind of cooled down on that. Yeah, I think I think what's going on there uh, is is not exceptional. I, I I think what's happening, to be quite honest with you, I think that. The the run up in wood rail prices was driven by uh, about 50 people, and those 50 were were avid collectors of wood rails for the most part, uh, guys who had experienced those games in their growing up years, and uh, were competing for what they perceived at that time to be an extraordinarily limited supply, which for the most part was true. Uh, I think what has happened is that the major collectors, for the most part, now have in their collections the games that they want. And uh, I think there's been not a whole lot of uh, interest on the part of new collectors, uh, most of whom are by definition younger than, than um, you know, the pioneer collectors. And I think what will happen, in my judgment, uh, I could be 100% off the mark, but I think what's going to happen is that uh, the market for that stuff will remain stabilized, perhaps even depressed. Uh, the spikes will be the extraordinarily rare pieces like the Gottlieb Double Shuffle, uh, the Gottlieb Cyclone, uh, games that some of the major collectors are still looking for haven't been able to find I could see $5,000 prices on games like that but the average stuff you know it's going to it's going to go for um, yeah, a thousand bucks yeah a thousand bucks twelve hundred bucks but I, I think I think that uh, ten years out perhaps uh, the the uh, the wood rails are going to eclipse the category, and I think they're going to start to fall into the category of things like kinetoscopes, the Spanish squeezes, 
Duesenbergs and Chords, Golden Age comic books, orchestrions, and a whole new group of collectors is going to find this stuff uh, incredibly interesting and have an insatiable desire for it. Uh, I think it's going to go out of category. Uh, I think I think a lot of the uh, a lot of the interest that was uh, cross category, like uh, those that were interested in uh, uh, in Minstrel and Blackiana, who bid up the prices of games like Swanee and and Minstrel Man. Uh, are, become, are going to become more of a factor, and they're going to look at the stuff as classic Americana. Uh, I think that baseball collectors will be increasingly interested in games like Hit and Run, Grand Slam. Uh, you know, boxing collectors are going to become more interested in games like Knockout, Madison Square Garden. Um, I think I think it's 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 going to evolve uh, and and ultimately. Uh, uh, assume a status that, that goes beyond the category. And I think the prices on a lot of the stuff uh, will become very, very substantial. Not all of it, not all of it for sure, but I think it will, it will be appreciated for what it is, which is classic Americana. Yeah, they're all, they're like a picture in time is really what they are. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Now, well, how do you feel about Mermaid? Uh, I think for its time period, it's a very interesting game. I, I like the fact that it's got uh, a three-phase step-up uh, in terms of the, the side rollovers. Um, I think that uh, of the of the uh, uh, the opening and closing gate games, it's one of the better ones. Uh, I love the graphics. It's one of my absolute favorites. It's one of the games that I have set up here and I play constantly. Um, you know, again, Clay. I think, uh, for me anyway, I, I don't, I don't presume to speak for other collectors, but for me, I, I try and uh, play and appreciate a game in context, and think about, okay, you know, here's a game that was made in 1951, and you know, I try and put my head back into that into that situation and say. Uh, you know, can I enjoy it on that basis? For instance, I love I love the play on um, uh, Barnacle Bill. I think it's a superb playing game for its time. Same thing with um, uh, Bowling Champ, not Bowling Champ. What's the one with the with the ten pins? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's a. Uh, I know what you're talking about. That's a great game. Um, oh, it's a wonderful game. Yeah, um, it's a superb game. Uh, the name escapes me now. Too. Spot Bowler. Yeah, Spot Bowler, right. Uh, same thing with, with Knockout. Uh, I mean, say, excuse me, same thing with Joker. Killer game for the time. Absolutely killer game. And, you know, if, if, if you want to approach it from the sensibilities of, of a game made 20 years later, you say, oh, this thing sucks. But, uh, you know, to me, I, you know, I came of age before before video games. Uh, I love video games. I enjoy playing them. But I love the fact that, that the wood rails are largely intuitive, that uh, they have multiple award systems, that in many cases you could win up to 10 to 12 games with, with 
you know, one single brilliantly illustrated or brilliantly executed flip. I mean, look at a jockey, uh, not jockey club, Derby Day. Derby Day, 12-game special. And at the same time, if you had that lit, you had a rollover button that was worth a game every time you rolled over it. I mean, it was insane. Uh, it was so damn much fun. Well, back in the 50s, when you were a kid or, or, you know, or a young adult or whatever, what's the maximum number of games you ever remember winning in one game? What maximum number of specials or replays in one game? Uh, probably on either Wishing Well or Frontiersman, uh, dropping, dropping the hole for extra special for ten games. Okay, so you remember doing that out in the, out in the Raw. Oh, without well, that question. Okay. <laughs> no, I never, I never got the 26 game special on, on, uh, Sweet Adeline. Because it was, in my judgment, obfuscated in the, in the instructions. If we had known that you'd get 26 games, if you completed all the all the numbers, we would have done that. Oh, you mean you don't think it's clear on the instructions? Oh, without question. Huh. Interesting. Okay. I was I was kind of wondering about that. I guess the only reason I know is Richard told me. You know, I, I have that game in. Uh, um, it's a, it's a hard game to find with a play field that's any good. Yeah, sure. Well, the the, the play field arrangement or the basic design is 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 uh, very much a, an adaptation of of their earlier very successful Gypsy Queen. Right now, what was the one that you said that you liked especially? Was that Twin Bill? Twin Bill is a killer game. It's an absolute killer game. It uh, it gives you. Uh, two scores. You get a red score and a green score, and they 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 rack up simultaneously. There's a common ten thousand unit, and then discrete and individual hundred thousand units, and you can win uh, replays on red, green, or both, plus a couple of different specials. So there's a lot of scoring strategies. Oh, it's a killer game. So now, much fun. Now. What did you feel that, you know, I asked Wayne Nyans about um, Four Bells versus Dragonette. Right. Now, why would you do a Dragonette, which is a very, fairly successful game, and then a few games later do Four Bells, which was, excuse me, basically the exact same game with different artwork? Um, I mean, what's what's the point? And he said, well, you know, we, we probably had to fill a production schedule at the time. We needed a game, and it was the quick and easy way to get one out that was that was popular. But you know, but the production numbers. I mean, they only made four hundred four yeah. bells. I think, in my judgment, and again, uh, everything I say, please preface it by saying this is my personal feeling. I have no authority here, except you know, right? Your experiences. My my personal experience, but I think what was going on with four bells, in my judgment, was that. Um, in October of 54, Gottlieb released Jumbo, or Super Jumbo. Actually, they released it in three versions. Um, and that was their first multiplayer game. I think the investment of time and effort involved in that game uh, was substantial. The, the sales were disappointing um, initially because they weren't just selling... Uh, you know, a new pinball design. They were they were trying to sell an entirely new pinball concept. Um, I think that Four Bells was partly what Wayne said. It, it was uh, an effort, a quick and dirty effort, um, 
to fill the pipeline. And I think it was also an acknowledgement of the fact that the Dragonette, which I think had a run of about 950, uh, proved to be a very, very popular game on the street. I remember playing it as a kid. It was one of the few games, not the few, but, but the minimal number of, of Gottlieb games I played brand new. And it was a killer game. And as I said, I think they only made about 950 of them. And, uh, you know, uh, Four Bells was not the first time that, that, that Gottlieb came back and, and reprised a, a highly popular game. Uh, they had, they had done the same with, with Telecard and Gin Rummy. Uh, Gin Rummy was exactly the same playfield layout as Telecard. Uh, but, uh, they had done well with Telecard. And even though Gin Rummy was, was one of the smallest runs they'd ever done, uh, you know, it filled a gap in terms of production. They could put it right back on the line. Uh, you know, I, I, I think it had to do with, with, uh, economics, pure and simple. Now, what is your feeling about, you know, the gobble holes and the trap hole games? You know, like, Dragonette's a trap hole game. It's got, what, five trap holes? Yeah, five trap holes, which is, you know, and a, and a trap hole is something that grabs a ball and keeps it there on the play field, but, Another ball can't go in that hole. Where, of course, a gobble hole is a hole that where you know you could put all five balls in right. one single gobble hole. A lot of people don't like either style of hole because it's like it's a drain. It's a right. uh, you know it's a it's an out hole basically. Right. Well, you know, what's your feeling on that? Well, I, I don't know. I, uh, what I, what I do know about the gobble hole specifically, Clay, is that um, the reason and, and in my judgment, again. Uh, I think some of the greatest games of, of uh, the Gottlieb's Golden Age during the 50s uh, were their multiple special gobblehole games. I wrote, I wrote uh, an extensive article about that in, uh, uh, yeah, in Game, game room, room some time ago. But, you know, beginning, uh, well, shit, you can go back all the way to uh, uh, Queen of Hearts' first game. Well, yeah and no. Um, yeah, strictly, strictly Queen of Hearts was, but it wasn't. Uh, yeah, it was. It was multiple special, but it wasn't. It wasn't a single drop hole, which which became a, a kind of an earmark of of Gottlieb. You could win, as I recall, eight games on Queen of Hearts uh, if you got five of a kind. Uh, it might have even been ten, depending upon the operator. I can't remember what the plugins were, but it might have been, might have been ten. But, uh, you know, starting as early as, say, uh, Slug and Champ, uh, now that was a two-hole drop-hole game, and if you lit one league for special, you got a game in, in either of the hole, uh, no, excuse me, you got a game in the lit hole, if you completed both leagues, national and American, uh, you got six games in either hole. And that kind of started it, but, but the, the real, uh, in my judgment, the, the, you know, the real, uh, multiple special single gobble hole games, uh, were games like, uh, uh, you know, uh, Sweet Adeline, Wishing Well, uh, Easy Aces, Frontiersmen, Harbor Lights, 
Derby Day, Classy Bowler. Uh, I loved those games. I thought they were great. Uh, I particularly love Classy Bowler. I mean, I just thought that was a killer game. Uh, it's got, more of a modern, you, you modern play field. Spares and, and which was like the old points, uh, right, on the, on the, on the earlier games. Yeah, and I asked Wayne about that too. I said, why do you have scoring for, you know, of course, 10,000 and 100,000 and millions, but then you have this kind of parallel point system, this single point system, and they have different repl- or replay values set for both systems. Yeah. And he said, you know, it's just a gimmick. It's something we tried, and we stuck with it for a while, and then we got rid of it. Oh. You know, and that was that was the end of that question. Clay, to <laughs> me, that was that was the charm of those games. It really was. It really was. It was just great. I mean, I'd love knocking on the points on, on on a game like Mystic Marvel, for instance, or Niagara. It was it was wonderful. It just was. And and see that that excitement doesn't exist in existing games. It just doesn't. I mean, you know, a game like, as I said before, at the risk of repeating myself, but, you know, a game like Queen of Hearts with five routes to special. Come on, man. I mean, it was electric. You couldn't, you couldn't wait to go back and play that game. And you knew there was a prospect of winning from one to God knows how many games. Right. Right. Now, during the day, how do you think that uh, replays got, really did get, you know, paid off by the bartender, as you know, you hear a lot of people talk about. I don't. I don't think so with the Gottlieb stuff. God, I mean, Gottlieb. After after they got rid of the the uh, uh, projection units in the early stuff with the, with the rounded tops, you know. Right, right. Yeah, the arch top back yeah. boxes. Yeah. Once they got rid of projection units, and I think the last one of those was well, I mean, the first the first standard uh, replay score reel, I think, was. Um, uh, I don't think it was probably. Oh, geez. Probably bowling champ, right? Probably old faithful. Oh. I think Casey Jones was the last projection unit, or somewhere in that area. Casey Jones, old faithful. But those went up to, if I remember, uh, maybe forty-eight games. But I think after that, I, I don't know when the I don't know when the the uh, the knockoff button disappeared. I'd have to get all my games together and get underneath and look. But I'm guessing it was probably no later than uh, mid 1950. Uh, I think, as 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 you correctly surmised in, in uh, your pieces about the Williams things, which uh, quite honestly I enjoyed tremendously. I think you were right. I think Williams was. Was more in that, uh, uh, you know, in that area. I, I'm not sure that even 48 games uh, was significant relative to 999. But yeah, <laughs> it may have been. I don't know. But they, they uh, certainly when they put the when they put the the three-digit meters in there, uh, they were looking at the gambling crowd without question. Right. Uh, you know, Peter Pan, um, uh, I don't know, two or three other games. Yeah, there wasn't a ton of games with the, with the three digit credit unit on the Williams machines, but, you know, clearly they, they had something in mind. You know, I mean, who is going to win 900 games and play off 900 games? Yeah, of course. (laughs) 
I mean, that's just that's ludicrous. Nobody yeah. does. Nobody does that. Yeah. You know, for sure. So, so I mean, I think I think your, your I think your uh, uh, observations there were, were were quite correct. I think they were they were longer in that camp than Gottlieb. Yeah, Gottlieb seemed more about you know achieving a skill objective. You know, hitting certain number of targets or bumpers in an order or 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 whatever. Where Williams just seemed all about getting a score that got you, you know, as many replays as possible so you could get paid off by the bartender. You know, it really it really did have that kind of feel to it, but I you know, I don't that might that maybe that's incorrect. I, I don't really know. You know? I, I, I don't know either, Clay. I honestly don't. I I I my experience was uh limited by uh, my locale, which was Philadelphia, which was overwhelmingly Gottlieb territory. Uh, most of the Williams stuff I saw was when I went to the uh, uh, the seashore in, in New Jersey uh, on the boardwalk in Wildwood, Atlantic City, uh, Ocean City. Um, but Gottlieb uh, pretty much owned. I mean, it was... Uh, well, did Gottlieb have a better distribution system than Williams? I mean, why was Gottlieb so much more prevalent than than you know the Williams production numbers? Though we don't really have them, they see just you know from the availability of the games today, I would guess that they're considerably lower. Yeah, they're a fraction of Gottlieb's, except right. in, in most exceptional cases. But for instance, uh, I've got I've got a complete set of the bound volumes of Billboard that came out of Active Active Amusements in Philly, which is where I grew up. Uh, I've got I've got from you know, like 1949 through 1962, and Active was huge. Active was the dominant distributor in Philly. Uh, there were a lot of you know fringe distributors who who distributed other stuff. I mean, by shit, by '56, everybody was gone except Gottlieb and Williams. Genco was gone. Uh, United was gone in, in the pinball area. They did they did baseballs. They did arcade games. Um, you know, Marvel was long gone. Um, you know, the thing that's astonishing to me is that, that before the war, there were like 12 to 15 viable pinball producers. And after the war, man, the, the thinning out was was nothing short of incredible. I me- remember going to one of the early uh, pinball expos and hearing somebody, it might have been Gary Stern, I don't remember, Saying you know there's 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 room today for one and a half pinball manufacturers, and at one time um, it supported you know more than a dozen. Yeah, it's funny how uh, pinball manufacturing has come full circle. You know, from being one or two manufacturers in the in the mid to late 1950s, because Bally was really only making bingos back then, to uh, to now, when we only have one now, it's just it's really come full circle. Interesting. All right, Gordon, uh, you got any, anything else that I forgot to ask you, or that we need to throw out there? Well, let me take a look, Clay. You sent me a, a, a very complete list, which I appreciated. I hope this has been of use to you and, and of interest. Yeah, no, I think it's been great. Uh, let's see. I think we covered most of the questions, if not all of them. Uh, well, the only thing we didn't really talk about was any interesting restoration techniques that oh, you might have. I'm glad you mentioned that because 
one thing I'd like to share with you and, and the whole collector audience is, is a tip that I got uh, from a good friend and fellow collector who you know quite well, Richard Richard Longhurst. Um, I was struggling at the point in time when I talked to him about it with a terminally tired um, Gottlieb game. It was the Sluggin' Champ. And I said, Rich, I, I don't know what to do with this damn thing. I've spent probably 60 hours on it. And the rivets on the uh, on the boards, on the, on the step units in the back are, are just worn to nubs. And I'm not getting any pass-through. He said, shit, man. Just get in there and drop a, drop a drop of solder on them. And son of a bitch, if it doesn't work... Yeah, and you can use silver solder, uh, which is a little bit more durable than using, you know, lead-based solder. That that helps a lot too, you know, to to make them last longer. It's it's a fix that works. Yeah, it sure is. It yeah. sure is, it, and it, and it does. Yeah, yeah. Any other interesting little, you know, little tidbits? That's a kind of a cool one. Let's see what else. Um... What are you doing about plastics? <laughs> if if I need something desperately. Um... Uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll codge a decent one from somebody. I'll, I'll put it on a color copier. I'll laminate it. It ain't great, but you know, until somebody reproduces it, uh, it's it's certainly adequate. It's better than a warp piece of stuff. It's better than a little piece of bacon. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Because <laughs> exactly. that's what they, they turn all brown and crispy. Um, I mean, like a like a, a coin entry plate. I'll hit that with a with really really raw tough uh, uh, sandpaper. I don't give a shit what happens because well, you know, you know what I'm doing now. You go to um, these Home Depot or even these uh, God, even some of the um, like big lot, big lots. Yeah, and you can buy these you know thirty dollar or twenty five dollar bench grinders. Mm-hmm. You know they're like uh, six inch bench grinders. Mm-hmm. And then you you take the wheels off, you know the the stone wheels. Yep. And you put on um, a wire wheel. Yep. And you got to be careful because it likes to rip the part out of your hand. But, yeah. yeah. Um, but then you can buy this little thing from Harbor Freight, which is um, uh, it's like a speed control for the it was called a router speed control, but you can put it on the bench grinder so that the thing isn't spinning at you know thirty five hundred RPM. Yep. And I put like those, like you said, those coin entrance plates. I put those underneath that uh, that wire brush wheel. Oh man, I, I used to do what you did with the sandpaper. Yeah. And my fingers would just, you know, after you, <laughs> you know, your hands feel like a piece of rubber when it's all. No, done. you're right. You're absolutely you know? right. So, so now I just put the gloves on and run it by Good that wire you, wheel. I'm a fucking luddite. You know, it's just my, my, and then, you know, my hands just, I, I, the sanding thing, I, I can't do that anymore. Yeah. You know, I gotta let the machine <laughs> do it. And then I buy this stuff, um, it's called Krylon Crystal Clear, which is just a spray can stuff you buy at, you know, Kmart. And I just, you know, spray a coat over of that because you basically stripped all the plating off if there yeah. was any left. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, so. Absolutely. Same thing, man. You know, it, it sh- I mean, the thing shines. I mean, it's not the right kind of shine. Doesn't but, matter. Yeah, but it's sh- at least it's better than a piece of rust. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then you just shoot it with that stuff so it doesn't rust again and you're, uh, you're good to go. I've been doing it on the, um, 
you know, on the games with the clamshell for the ball release? Yep. You know, where the, the balls rest in that little clamshell tray area, and that, that, that tray just gets panicked. It just gets beat to death, and it looks, you know, god-awful. So I just, you know, I, I always do those. That's a good idea, man. Um, yeah, and I always do, like you said, those coin entrance plates and the, um, uh, the Heath acceptors. You know the the heat. Yep. Yeah, I always do those and yep. the little veed coin return thing. I always do those. Um, you know, and then every once in a while, when you get a game and the um, you know the the manual push rod is like you know welded inside. The, <laughs> <laughs> if I could ever get the thing out, I always got to do those to get all the crap off of it. it isn't that amazing how how horrendous some of that stuff comes through? Oh my God! You know, I just I did an Arabian Nights recently that. When Love I that did, game, by the way. Oh yeah, when I got it, I swear the guy, the guy must have stored it in the bottom of a lake. Yeah, you okay. know, I mean, it was everything was rusted. Like I never had to take um, a blowtorch to a stepper unit to free it from that game. I couldn't get the thing out. No kidding, I couldn't was, get it to move at all. No, not at all. I finally used some heat, and um, that was the only thing that got it to move. Finally. You know, I, but you know they're worth it, man. They really are. They're treasures. Yeah, that that game. I mean, I um, a guy was. Uh, I, I I think Shay or somebody did the the back glass for that. And, it's a beautiful um, glass. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It's the mean, most most risque glass that Gutley did in the fifties. Yeah, I'm kind of amazed that Parker was able to pull that off. I um, think probably what happened, in my judgment, I think probably it 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 accelerated their ability to penetrate bars and taverns and probably they got almost no distribution in candy stores and other you know adolescent venues so that was pretty risque for the time oh without question i mean that was beyond the pale it was i mean he showed everything but the nipples right right yeah huh and and you know talking to wayne he said that parker was very very conservative uh, a very conservative man you know his personality. Mm-hmm. Um, yet his drawings were uh, anything but. It's <laughs> <laughs> very repressed. Yeah, the guy lived vicariously through his artwork. I think I think he did, man. Yeah, yeah. Now I assume you never met him, right? I never met Parker. I was I was uh, quite friendly with with uh, George Millenton. I, I spent I say I say I was quite friendly. I, I met him on probably a dozen occasions, and uh, spent considerable amount of time with him at, at various expos. We had lunch and dinner together. Uh, I, ha- I have some of his archives. Unfortunately, shortly after I met him, uh, he shared the fact with me that he had jettisoned uh, his personal notebooks that he had kept for 40-some years, which listed every piece of artwork he had ever done, who he had done it for, and what he charged. And, of course, I would have killed for that. But what, uh, He just threw it out? Threw it out. Oh, man. Was there anything about Wayne Nyans that you thought was, you know, really interesting uh, or about his, uh, his design methodology in the 50s and 60s? I think the thing that was most interesting was just, just to see that uh, what a high percentage of, of the games that, uh, Wayne had designed moved forward almost precisely the way he had designed them originally. Now there was very little modification. Yeah. Hmm. Yep. You mean even after they got the thing in white wood and 
and start to, you know, actually play it, that it basically, you know, the way he designed it was the way it went out. Pretty much. Mm. Pretty much. Well, yeah, I, I, I personally have, have, uh, uh, both the greatest affection and, and admiration for Wayne Nyans, I think. I think he was the greatest pinball designer that ever lived. This is a kind of a sidebar, and he didn't ask, but I'm going to offer it anyway. Uh, here is a man that, that during the 50s, for almost a decade and beyond that, self-handedly designed on the order of one game a month, sometimes more than that, single-handedly, as opposed to today's design teams that uh, may comprise 5, 6, 10, 12 people and take six to ten months to design a game, uh, I would maintain the the work that Wayne did solo uh, in the 50s would stand the test of time against any of that stuff. I think the guy was a design genius. How about... I told him that. I've shared that with other friends and collectors. How about his uh, contemporaries like, you know, Harry Williams and Harry Mabs and, and you know, some of those people? How did, you know... They were probably operating under similar conditions, um, and probably, you know, doing similar work. They just weren't as consistent. You know, I mean, yeah, that's probably. Well, I, I, I think, I think, uh, one of the reasons, in my judgment, for, for Wayne's extreme success was that, uh, he had bought into a company and a system and an ethos, uh, Wayne, uh, Revered David Gottlieb and and believed that uh, his charge was uh, to do everything that he could uh, to keep people employed, uh, to make the best games that that he could possibly make. And um, I mean, I think there are other other great designers of the era. I think I think uh, Harry Williams was a great designer. Uh, I don't think he imposed upon himself or recognize the same kinds of disciplines that Nyans did. I think, I think Nyans was an extraordinarily disciplined guy. I, I, I compare it to what I do. Um, not that I presume to say that I do what I do at the level that, that Wayne did, but um, I'm, a, I'm a creative director in an advertising agency, and one of the challenges is to work within the constraints of the givens. A client says, you know, I have this product, I have this distribution, I have this amount of money to spend, and you have to come up with a campaign. And I think that that's what Wayne was faced with. He was told, look, we have uh, these financial goals, we have these constraints in terms of of your bill of materials, uh, you've got to come up with a game a month. And the guy did it. And he not only did it, he did it month after month with, you know, gangbuster game after game. Uh, I think, I think Harry Williams was a genius. I think Harry Mabs was, was, was extraordinarily talented. Uh, I, th- I think the two of them did extraordinary things at Williams, but I think it was, it was nowhere near as, as disciplined or focused as what Wayne did. And I think that's why Gottlieb succeeded so admirably. Uh, I think that Steve Kordak did some great design work. I think Harvey Heiss earlier did great design work for the time. But uh, if I had to put my money on a guy and 
say who was the greatest pinball designer that ever lived, I'd, I'd vote Wayne Nyan's hands down. Yeah, I think I'd probably have to agree with you. <laughs> Seeing how my Gottlieb collection pretty much is, I think I only have a couple games that were by uh, Maps, but everything else is Nyan's. You know, right up, yeah. Yeah. Well, Harry Harry did some great stuff. I mean, he did he did a lot of early stuff. I mean, he he did games like Knockout, uh, like Joker and Knockout. No question about it. Right. No question about it. They're right. great games. Um, but you know, for a run of games, uh, for a period of time that was very very difficult for the industry. I mean, you're, you're looking at 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 uh, early '50s stuff and and. Uh, you know the the stuff that was going on at that time was was intense. I mean, you had uh, you know had shuffle bowlers and you had shuffle alleys that were free for nothing in bars. You had bingos that were breaking everybody's chops. Uh, and and you know Wayne sustained him through that period. Right. So he got him through the Johnson Act and the yep. Korean War. Yep. Absolutely, man. Right. Right. Interesting. All right, cool. Is there anything else I might have left out? I don't think so. I've enjoyed it very much. I appreciate the call, and, and I hope it makes for a good uh, a good interview. No, I think it's great, and I appreciate you uh, giving me the time to talk. I'd like to thank Gordon Hussey for spending some time with us and talking about his pinball collection and um, and his and the history of Gottlieb and Williams wood rails through the 1950s. It was a true joy, and I really appreciate him being on TopCast. And I hope you all will come back and listen to us here on TopCast again. Thanks a lot.